You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Permanent Vacation, released March 6th, 1981. It was written and directed by Jim Jarmusch and released by Synesthesia. Director Jarmusch shot the film on 16mm shortly after dropping out of NYU Film School. It was his first feature-length film. The title is taken from a lyric in the song My Boyfriend's Back. According to IMDb, Jean-Michel Basquiat was on set for the apartment scenes, sleeping in a sleeping bag on the floor while they shot. (laughs) Yeah, he was there, sleeping in the room. Okay. Don't know why. Going to start by admitting that this is a Jim Jarmusch movie and thus cannot be properly conveyed by mere description. His films are moods, and if what I describe here on the show sounds less than intriguing, it is more than likely my failing than the films. But you might also not like this movie. (laughs) Jim Jarmusch is (laughs) not for everyone. This is merely what happens in the plot. This is probably only my fourth jim jarmusch movie what are the others uh coffee and cigarettes the the one in like the early 2000s yeah okay yeah um which is a collection of three short films that were edited together yeah um the one you showed me with tom waits uh, down by law down by law Law. and uh the the, zombie one the zombie one dead don't die yeah (laughs) we start with slow-mo pedestrians in new york we see empty alleyways while the credits play and then we see slow-mo pedestrians between the credits a slow, clanky, metallic score tumbles in, and it reminds me a lot of the Adaptation soundtrack. For comparison, here's a bit from Permanent Vacation. adaptation. I found the sound kind of interesting in this film. Um, I don't know that it was intentionally supposed to be interesting, but because it it was added after the fact, and I'm sure this was sort of low budget, everything is a little asynchronous. Yeah. And so it gives it a little unsettling feeling yeah totally and and the score is also like atonal and strange and it's a little freaky deaky we see aloysius walk through the streets or ali as he will call himself ali carries a small can of spray paint and he drags a line across a wall he spray paints ali total blam blam on a wall and then we cut to his apartment where he introduces himself to us my name is aloysius christopher parker And if I ever have a son, he'll be Charles Christopher Parker, just like Charlie Parker. But people I know just call me Allie. 
and this is my story or part of it. The actor's name is actually Chris Parker. So I don't know if he wrote this around the character or what. Well, I actually have a bit to discuss about that. Oh, okay. Do you want to do that now or do you want to say um, it? Well, I, I pulled I pulled some because I, I, I literally had no notes from this movie. Okay. Um, because I wasn't sure how to take notes about right. this movie. It's a, it's a difficult one. Um, and so instead I went and pulled some stuff from sources. And one of them, uh, I don't know if it is from Jim Jarmusch, but it's written as if it is from Jim Jarmusch. Okay. So I'm going uh, – but it it's because it's written in first person. Yeah. Uh, it says it says the main character is partially based on the actor portraying him, Chris Parker, whose real life situation is very similar to Aloysius Parker. Uh, pieces of dialogue came directly from tapes that I made with, while writing the script, and almost all of many backstreet locations in Manhattan were very familiar to him. Okay, interesting. So again, I don't know if that was Jim Jarmusch. The 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 page the article that I got this from didn't have it in quotes and didn't specify a source or anything yeah but it, it was written in first person so. yeah interesting Allie talks about the people he's met and spent time with comparing them to a series of rooms as he speaks in voiceover a series of rooms appear in a slow montage an empty pool hall an empty classroom a kitchen a hallway a prison cell a living room a bedroom an art studio Allie tells us that people are like rooms and that they can be inviting at first and mysterious but eventually you learn all there is about the room and you start to dread it. A bar, a dining room, a dingy apartment. Suddenly the apartment is furnished with a mattress on the floor and a girl in a chair by the window. She silently smokes a cigarette and stares out at the traffic. She asks Allie where he's been since Thursday and he says he's just been walking because he can't sleep in this city. He puts on a record and he dances to the music. A frame of this dancing serves as the poster for the film. His lady friend is amused by the gyrating. It's a lot of spinning and chin jutting. He seems exhausted by the end of the song. He tells the girl about his sometimes plan to die young and go out in a three-piece white suit like Charlie Parker. In the kitchen, Allie reads the girl passages from a book for a while. She tries to express her loneliness to him, and he tells her that everyone is alone. Allie looks out the window, and we see a man fill and close a suitcase across the street. He tells the girl that he's going to go see his mom, at an institution for the first time in over a year. But first, he's going to walk through the rubble of the building where his parents lived when he was born. He says it was blown up during the war. Yeah. But I was what? really confused by yeah, that. Yeah, by who? The Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> it's <just> really dramatic <laughs> well, read. Before he gets to that, though, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, oh, is this not happening in like present day new york city like what where are we when are we well that's the other weird thing and i i forget what what the exact line is but there is one hint before this that we're not in new york we are in new york yeah and he calls it new york later but he says something about how this city is so strange and it's a whole city of strangers or something like that uh but he makes it sound like he he's out of place here even though he was born and grew up in the new york area we see Allie meandering through plants somewhere as the sounds of bombs exploding can be heard all around him. He explores the ruins of a building being reclaimed by the wildlife. Around a corner, he encounters a dirty man who shouts like he's in a war zone. Incoming rounds! What's the matter? Hey, there's a man in the planes! Get on the ground! Allie convinces him that the planes that he hears are American choppers. I still can't tell if this movie takes place in an alternate universe where part of America is a war zone. I think on purpose, Jarmusch is implying 
or or leaving it in a in a situation where you can assume that this is an alternate universe where there's a war happening or he was just being weird with his girlfriend that time and everyone else who talks about the war after that is crazy i i so i i struggled with this movie throughout and we can talk about this more later but my interpretation of it though is that this is this is an entire art piece about the state of like mental health because everybody seems in, in a poor in a poor way in terms of their mental health sure, you know yeah. and so i assumed that he like everyone else is just crazy because okay so in the movie apocalypse now every time they reach a new area where a battle has just rounded up like they're they're usually getting to places right as the battle ends and they ask someone who's in charge every time and it's usually someone who's like bandaged from head to toe and totally fucked up and everywhere they go the person says i don't know who's in charge or you tell me who's in charge or what difference does it make like nobody knows who's in charge anywhere or what's going on really but in that movie it's an actual war zone and everyone is saying that they don't know who's in charge but in this situation you're saying that it's a it's not a real war zone and and everyone who says it is is crazy well i also kind of retrospectively interpreted it as perhaps a much larger metaphor for the war against the chinese as far as the economy and yeah. this, this is this is the damage that their the war has that war has done with everything all the manufacturing mm-hmm. and just just leaving just the rubble in the wake of of where industry once thrived yeah well there's a lot of room for interpretation here um, a lot yeah. <laughs> a lot of room almost too much <laughs> he offers the man a cigarette and he tells the man that he had a dream about a car and then he saw the car that's the end of that scene <laughs> <laughs> the characters leave frame and we cut away from the scene with the sound of an explosion and an abrupt cut to black which is like was that a bomb going off or is that just the sound effects that are in the background of everything? Like, we don't know. At his mother's institution, we see nurses helping patients walk through the halls. A nurse leads Allie to his mom's room. Every actor in this universe is under 30 except for these two patients mm-hmm. because it's practically it's a student friends. film. So it's <laughs> yeah. just like people that he knew. Allie's mother tells him that his eyes don't belong to him because they were taken from his father's head. She and her roommate laugh hysterically until a plane passes overhead and they listen as if worried. Allie's mom says that she hasn't heard planes since the war when she was bombed, which her story is now lining up to what Allie said, that bombs were dropped on their home. Um, Right, but... But she might also just be crazy. We don't know. Right, and it might also be genetic. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. and, and And these were the lies that he was fed by a crazy mother. That's true. Is there another war going on? Allie doesn't answer so as to avoid confirming or denying for the viewer that this is a depiction of wartime. As Allie stands to leave the room, she asks again, and again he doesn't answer. Outside, Allie walks the streets until he finds a woman singing Cialito Lindo. She's wearing what looks like underwear, and her lipstick is smeared in a manic loop around her mouth. When Allie tries to ask what she's singing, she shouts crazily for him to be quiet until he leaves. Allie plays with a yo-yo for a bit, He walks to a movie theater with a poster for 1960's The Savage Innocence outside. At the concession stand, he buys popcorn and asks the girl if he'll like the movie. The Queen and the Eskimo film? Um, Well, the only parts that I remember were uh, the first part where they're eating maggots, and the second part where the old lady tells the pregnant daughter uh, that the firstborn, if it's a boy, um, they rub it with blubber. 
for good luck. And the second, if it's a girl, uh, they stuff snow in its mouth and kill it. In the theater lobby, a man mumbles nonsense to himself until Allie walks up. He asks Allie if he's heard of the Doppler effect. The man says that he has a joke about the Doppler effect. This is how the joke goes. A man in the past played saxophone, like in the 50s, and nobody liked it because he was too advanced and he couldn't find work, so his friend said, go to Europe, because they're advanced in Europe and you could find work there. But when he got there, he had the same problem. So he played out on the street for a while, but eventually he got so depressed that he climbed a building to kill himself. Just as he was about ready to jump it, skies open up, and there's this ray of light hidden like a spotlight. Hmm? For no reason at all, he just <laughs> he picked up his horn and started playing somewhere over the rainbow. The man loses his place in the song, and when some cops try to get him down off the roof, he jumps, but when the ambulance comes, he was going because it's the doppler effect is making it match the notes of the song that's why the joke is called the doppler effect Allie reacts exactly how i did which is to slowly look away and wonder why he sat here (laughs) (laughs) but you're doing it in your living room yeah why am i sitting here this this joke and story was my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> I, I, I agree, and it actually plays into the ending, in my yeah. opinion. We cut to that night, and Allie walks up to a man playing saxophone on the street. What do you want to hear, kid? I don't care as long as it's vibrating, bugged out sound. Man, what a sax. I'd have been like, fuck off, kid. <laughs> I'm not going to play anything for you. You're too weird. You're too, you're too advanced. <laughs> Go to Europe. By coincidence, the man plays a very loose version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Just enough where you don't have to get sued. Yeah. Allie wakes up on a blanket on a concrete rooftop somewhere. He mumbles to himself for a bit before speaking up to shout, This gun is my legislative gun. And then he pantomimes firing the legislative gun. He does a quick edit on the line. It's this gun is my legislative branch. No, that's it. He seems happier with the second draft. Allie spins for a while, and then we cut to him leaning against a mailbox somewhere. A convertible pulls up, and when a woman steps out to drop some mail in the box, Allie walks around her and steals her car. A passing pedestrian thinks this is hilarious while the woman is freaking out about it. That dude was wild style. Oh no, man. You better get your ass out of here before you snatch that up too. (laughs) <laughs> I like that reaction. <laughs> Allie pulls it into a warehouse where a second man is waiting outside and closes the door behind him. They appear to be working together. Inside, the second man gives the car a quick once over and offers Allie $800 for it. Allie bluffs that he can get more elsewhere, but eventually admits that he needs the money and takes the 800 Allie returns home and calls out for his lady friend, but it doesn't seem like she's here. He packs his belongings, including a passport, into a suitcase and he sits down to write the girl a letter before he leaves. On the docks, Allie waits for a bit until he notices another man. They chat for a bit, and Allie learns that this guy is not waiting for the same boat, 
that this man had to leave France to come here, and Allie says he has to leave here. They compare tattoos until Allie's boat arrives, and they part ways. Allie boards the boat, and in voiceover we hear how he struggled with the letter to his girlfriend. He doesn't want a job or taxes or responsibilities, and he thinks that they don't have those things wherever he's going. The film ends in Allie's POV looking back at New York from the back of the ship as it shrinks away onto the horizon. The clanging soundtrack comes back mixed with Somewhere Over the Rainbow again on the saxophone, and that's the end of the film. Yeah, and the the version of the Somewhere Over the Rainbow keeps getting higher pitched. Yeah, because of the Doppler effect. Yeah, because of the Doppler effect. Because of the implication. (laughs) (laughs) This final shot is apparently an homage to the final shot of Chantal Ackerman's News from Home, 1976. Our writer-director and musician here was Jim Jarmusch. This was his first feature, which he followed with Stranger Than Paradise and then Down by Law, the Coffee and Cigarettes series, Dead Man, Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai, Broken Flowers, and more recently, Patterson and The Dead Don't Die with Adam Driver. He usually writes and sometimes edits his own films. The other music credit went to John Lurie. Uh, as I said before, it's very adaptation-y. Uh, he plays the saxophone player in the film, and he also has a soundtrack credit on Barfly, and also in 2,628 episodes of Late Night with Conan O'Brien, for which he performs the opening theme. He wrote the score for Stranger Than Paradise, Down By Law, and later Get Shorty, Excess Baggage, and Clay Pigeons. He also hosted a show called Fishing With John that sadly only ran for six episodes, all available on DVD from Criterion, that was essentially a predecessor to comedians in cars getting coffee, but it was just awesome people fishing with John Lurie. Guests included Jarmusch, Tom Waits, Matt Dillon, Willem Dafoe, and Dennis Hopper. Lurie currently hosts a sort of spiritual sequel on HBO Max called Painting with John. It just started in January. He doesn't have guests on this time. He just paints and philosophizes while he paints. It's probably a lot like watching this movie. I had a coworker once named John Lurie, and he said that people would always ask him if he'd seen Fishing with John. <laughs> that was the first <laughs> thing that they correlated it to. As an actor, he appears in Stranger Than Paradise and Down by Law for Jarmusch. He's in Paris, Texas. He's in Desperately Seeking Susan, Last Temptation of Christ, Wild at Heart, and he also played prisoner Greg Penders in 13 episodes of Oz. Cinematographer was Tom DeCillo. He returned to DP Stranger Than Paradise and Coffee and Cigarettes for Jarmusch and later wrote and directed a trilogy of enjoyable Steve Buscemi films, Living in Oblivion, Double Whammy, and Delirious. He also wrote and directed Johnny Suede, Box of Moonlight, and The Real Blonde on his way to regular work on various Law & Order series. The other cinematographer credited is James A. Leibovitz. This was his first feature, and he later moved on to Trauma to DP the Toxic Avenger series and later Maniac director Bill Lustig's Uncle Sam film. Leibovitz also worked camera crew for Lustig's Maniac Cop 2, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer film, and Critters 4. Richard Bowes played the war vet. He's in Stranger Than Fiction, Down by Law, Mystery Train, and Dead Man for Jarmusch. And he's also in a movie I like called Trees Lounge, which Buscemi actually wrote and directed. Have I shown you that? No. It's a good one. It's Chloe Sevigny, and uh, and he plays the main character. I think Sam Jackson's in there. It's good. Sarah Driver played the nurse. She was the production manager and assistant director on this film. She has a writing credit on Broken Flowers for having suggested the idea. She also appears in Stranger Than Paradise, Mystery Train, and The Dead Don't Die for Jarmusch. She also directed a film called Sleepwalk, which is one of Steve Buscemi's first films. 
And the last credit I have here was Frankie Faison, who played the man in the lobby. This was his first feature. He shows up later this year in a small role for Ragtime. He's in Cat People, Chud, Exterminator 2, The Money Pit, Maximum Overdrive. We just saw him as Lieutenant Fisk in Manhunter, right. uh, which we watched recently outside of podcast duty. Uh, but he also shows up in the sequels, Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal, and Red Dragon as a different character. Correct. Uh, he's in well, coming- he, he, he's the same character in those sequels, but not the same character from Manhunter. Right. Yes. He's, <laughs> he's Nurse. He's Barney. Barney. Barney, the, the, the head of earlier. In earlier. the three sequels. Yeah. But in the first one, he's a cop. Correct. He's in Coming to America, Mississippi Burning, Do the Right Thing. He's also in Free Jack, which we also watched recently. Uh, he's the Lloyd in The Stupids. Remember, throw your gum in the trash when you're done chewing. I spend a huge amount of my time cleaning up gum. In the name of the Lloyd! He's also in the Brosnan Thomas Crown Affair, White Chicks. He's Pop, the owner of the barbershop where Luke Cage works on the Netflix Marvel series. And those were all the credits I had for this one. I think this is an interesting film. It's a thumbs down for me. I don't think this is necessary viewing unless you're a Jarmusch uh, completist, which I'm sure... It doesn't take much. He doesn't have that many films. And it's it's a quick watch. It's 75 minutes long, so it's not like it's a huge commitment. But I don't think there's anything special to this that makes it a must-see situation yeah i agree with that uh i completely agree i um i i I can't say that i wasn't interested because again i i'm not as familiar with jim jarmusch and i was like i feel like i should be more familiar with his work and i was like okay this is not this is similar to to two of the things that i've seen him do yeah uh, I, I mean, it, in terms of pacing, it's on par with Down by Law. It's obviously not as professional. It doesn't yeah. have the same, like, cast strength. I mean, John Lurie's in, in both, but he yeah, plays yeah. a bigger character. In and and Coffee and Cigarettes was just weird enough to be entertaining. And it's also, oh, you're changing sets and characters yeah, every, yeah, yeah. every three minutes. Yeah. No, I, I like Coffee and Cigarettes a lot. Yeah. I think that's great. I, I think I just struggled with this one a lot because I really don't and i know we said it's open to interpretation which is great but i feel like it doesn't take a stance on anything in this movie yeah. and i and i and i struggle with that so i'm like if it's some sort of portrait of mental health what are you saying about it i think it it comes across to me as more of a poem like the whole film is just a poem it's just I'm not I big like, into poetry i know <laughs> but that that's how i think it's supposed to work it's supposed to be you know little meandering observations um just changes of scenery and sort of like a weird world is inhabited by these characters and that's all there is to it it's it's a very simple film um i don't think that there is a lot to unpack i don't think he intended for people to read too far into it i think it was just here's some thoughts i had and i'll package it this way yeah then i guess if if that's what it was then it was a little tame for that like there's nothing but it's also super like, interesting yeah if, if that's what you're doing then you know just have little vignettes of things that are really like oh well that's really weird and interesting but these were really kind of mild yeah but he's also you know he's early 20s if that at the time um he just dropped out of film school so yeah. i mean like he didn't he didn't have a lot going into this yeah i mean it feels like one of those things where like when you're young and you think things are really much deeper than they actually are kind of things. <laughs> yeah, I agree. But I think you can tell from the film already that he has, you know, he has an instinct for where to put the camera to make a scene mm-hmm. interesting. 
and obviously i mean he's not the cinematographer here but it was all well lit uh, yeah and uh, there's a lot of stuff that i liked about it like that like i really love the shot of the girl like smoking in the windowsill Mm -hmm. uh you know with her legs up on the while he's dancing behind her yeah and then you know and then the also the shot of her at the table where she's you know sort of ripping into that book like i really liked those little bits in there but i just wish there was something more to grab onto yeah and i think that comes in his in his later works but this is just him you know ripping off the band-aid and getting that first film finished um and i think people saw it and they saw that he had an eye and that's why he was able to to get the next gig from it and stranger than paradise is also slow moving i would say it fits perfectly between this and uh down by law Mm -hmm. in terms of like you know it's a little bit more professional looking it's a better cast but it's also very slow in the same way that down by law is very slow but i love down by law like that movie could be slower and i would still love it because it just i I think the characters are so strong in that i think that happens also when you put roberto benini into the movie is that it's just like now there's like a battery in the middle of the shot and it's just powering everything Mm. there's like this nervous energy of is tom waits gonna punch roberto benini in the face (laughs) it's gonna happen right and also, I could just watch Tom Waits forever. That's yeah. true. Yeah. He, he is an ingredient for sure. Um, but yeah. Uh, where does this go letterboxed-wise after our after our three thumbs down? Uh, it's not super high. And, that, and you know, like I said, I, I, I would put his other films much higher. Uh, but this one was not super high for me. I have it 18 out of 26. It is below The Devil and Max Devlin and above Maniac. Uh, I have it in number 14, uh, just below my Bloody Valentine and above Blood Beach. Okay. I've been nestled in between those two horror films for some reason. Um, This sounds mean, but I, I have it in the order where I would I'd want to sit down and watch it again. Um, so that puts it in 24th. So it's it's above Scream because I think less happens in Scream. Than happened in this movie but it's below home sweet home oh i don't know i'd much rather watch this than a lot of those ones at the bottom those are painful i don't know this one wasn't painful that's true but i'd still rather watch home sweet home than this again i think that's everything for permanent vacation if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram and letterboxd Whereas I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. You can find the button at the top of our .com and join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future. Also search for Vintage Video Podcast on YouTube and subscribe to our new channel there. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us for our next episode when we'll be discussing Backroads which IMDb describes like so. A prostitute and a drifter find themselves bound together as they make their way through the rural south doing what they have to to survive. We leave you now with a trailer for Backroads. Sometimes the most incompatible people find a way of getting together. Hey, was that a cop that I hit? Amy and Elmore have done just that. I've known some squirrels in my life, but you are right up there at the top of the tree. In Backroads. Sally Field and Tommy Lee Jones in a story of falling into love. Backroads, rated R. Opens Friday, March 13th. Check newspapers for local listings.